This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author and editor Lee Eisenberg discusses his new book, The Point Is... Then PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris explores books on America's national parks. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What do we have on the nonfiction side, Well, Mark? we have Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World by Adam Grant and forward by Sheryl Sandberg. In our review, we say Wharton Professor Grant considers himself a huge fan of innovation, yet as he confides in the solid business guide, he passes up the opportunity to invest in eyeglass brand Warby Parker in its infancy, which is was the worst decision he ever made. We say with the forward by Sandberg, Grant's second book should attract as much attention as his best-selling first, which was Give and Take. And this is so, it's kind of a, uh, well, obviously a business book. The next one we have, we go from business to kind of self-help. This title is called The Weight, The Powerful Practice in Finding the Love of Your Life and the Life You Love by Devon Franklin. And uh, this is at number seven. And our review, we have when film executive Franklin and Actress Good met, both had already been in serious relationships, but neither had been married. And here they were each in the midst of reevaluating what was important in life and how to be more, as they say, intentional in their work. So here they talk about how they came together mm-hmm. and through love, they, they both kind of uh, heightened their own relationship with their own work. We say a guide to navigating the difficulties surrounding celibacy before marriage. The book proves little discussion of morality or Christian ethics. And so that's basically what we have there in our review. After that, we have L.A. Reed. 25 years he's been a music producer and uh, the man behind such artists is uh, uh, Mariah Carey, Pink, Justin Bieber, Usher, so many others. And this is a memoir called Sing to Me, My Story of Making Music, Finding Magic, and Searching for Who's Next. This is something that uh, was supposed to come out last year, I believe, and was bumped to this season. And it uh, debuts at number 21 on our bestseller list. Great. And finally, at number 18, we have another kind of self-help title is called The Urban Monk, Eastern Wisdom and Modern Hacks to Stop Time and Find Success, Happiness and Peace by Pedram Shojai. We don't have a review of this book, but we say uh, the the uh, publicity material says but we all struggle to discover satisfaction and contentment in the modern world, and yet the more technology we use, the more things seem to get worse. So this is talking about commitment to finding success and happiness, perhaps without as much technology. So I I use a meditation app on my phone, and so I don't know whether I'm doing it wrong. Uh, but it's actually, it's, it, you know, sometimes it can be kind of nice to just have a little piece in your pocket. Oh, wow. A meditation app. How does that work? Um, it, it plays you little guided meditations through your headphones as you're, as you're out and about 
oh, in the world. That's so pretty great. It's I, like I've, I feel like you know maybe technology is not not always the the uh, right the thing stopping you from finding peace in your life. Oh, that's it. That's that's very good. So over on the fiction list, we've got a lot of changes, a lot of new books, a new number one, uh, which is Brotherhood in Death by J.D. Robb. This is the 42nd book in her In Death series. She also writes under her name, Nora Roberts. Right. Um, she has written countless books. She's just an amazingly prolific author. Uh, and unlike some people, there's at least no credited co-author. So as far as we can tell, she just keeps knocking them yeah. all out herself. Amazing. Very, very impressive writer. Uh, and so Dennis Mira and uh, Charlotte Mira are the uh, heroes of the series. And uh, they they progress uh. through another mystery as they do, and um, this is probably one that's mostly for the fans. We don't have a review of it yet, but uh, it's it, number 42 in the series. Might not be the best starting point. On the other hand, Rob's or Robert's uh, books tend to stand pretty well on their own, so uh, if you pick this one up to see what all the hype is about, you probably won't be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that moving down just a little bit, number four mm -hmm. is Breakdown by Jonathan Kellerman. This is an Alex Delaware novel, his 31st in the series. Delaware is a Los Angeles psychologist and amateur crime solver, though after 31 books, maybe amateur is not the the right description mm. there. Um, <laughs> our review says that uh, the book is unconvincing, uh, with a far-fetched storyline, one-dimensional characters, uh, and the choice to delay the mention of any crime until later on in the book, um, which makes this one of the weaker entries in this popular series, but that didn't stop it from getting to number four on the mm. bestseller list. Down to number 11, uh, I'm actually I'm really delighted to see this book climb up so high, uh, Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen by Lois McMaster Bujold. Uh, Bujold is a, a very well-honored, well-decorated, multi-Hugo winning author of science fiction, and uh, this is part of her most popular series, the Vorkosigan family mm. saga. Um, our review says uh, that this enjoyable addition to the series will work best for readers who don't expect interstellar daring do, but are prepared to amble through a gently developing romance. Right. Uh, and uh, we say that tender feelings and humor add up to a droll tale that's more comforting and exciting, like a space opera written by Jane Austen. Oh, that so sounds great. If that's the sort of thing that you're you're yeah. looking for, you know, you don't get a lot of space opera right. that feels like Jane Austen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Usually it's more about <laughs> guns blazing than about people falling in love. And, uh, and this one has some interesting uh, three-part reproductive technology woven in there as that's well. That's a great PW review right yeah, there. Yeah, I, I, really I, I was very pleased with this. So um, that's at number 11 on our bestseller list. Well, well done, Lois. Uh, moving down a little bit, at number 14, Mr. Splitfoot by Samantha Hunt. Uh, we gave this a starred review, said it was ethereal. It's Hunt's third novel. And it's a nod to the mid-19th century legend of the Fox sisters, who were mediums who conjured up a devilish spirit they called Mr. Splitfoot mm. in order to separate the gullible from their money. So um, mm. Victorian era, people were very interested in spirituality, mediums, seances, mm. the idea right. of being able to talk to people in uh, beyond the grave or in other worlds. Um, we say that Hunt's use of a split narrative uh, to measurely disclose snippets of the protagonist's past uh, in alternating interconnected chapters, builds suspense while keeping readers guessing about what might happen next. 
and hints of what's in store for readers include a cult of etherists, a noseless man, a pile of lost money, and a scar-like pattern of meteorite landings. We say this spellbinder is storytelling at its best. Mm. So that's uh, that's a very exciting uh, addition to our uh, mm-hmm. our list. And uh, another starred review, a little further down at number 28, The High Mountains of Portugal by Jan Martel. Uh, who's the author of Life of Pi. Right. And... Uh, this book includes an Iberian rhinoceros, two chimpanzees, three dead wives, and two dead toddlers, all figuring in this highly imaginative novel. Um, it's three novellas set seven decades apart in the eponymous region of Portugal. Oh, wow. Uh, and you know, It's a powerful connection, uh, collection of short stories um, coming together here. And we say Martel is in a class by himself in acknowledging the tragic vicissitudes of life while celebrating wildly ridiculous contretemps that bring levity to the mystery of existence. Mm. So that's that's one for the more spiritual seekers there. Um, moving down a little bit to number 35, The Queen of the Night by Alexander Chi. Uh, his debut novel, Edinburgh, was uh, yeah, very well known mm. and uh, very well regarded. We say this is a lush and sweeping Second novel that shares a strikingly it uses a strikingly different setting from Edinburgh, but shares its musical themes and boldness. This one is set in 1882 Paris uh, and uh, features a star right. soprano uh, with an unforgettable but vulnerable voice. Uh, and the Queen of the Night obviously is one of the most famous opera arias of all time. An incredibly challenging mm. piece of work. Uh, and so yeah, just imagining someone trying to, to tackle that, right. um, there's plenty of drama just waiting to happen. And we say that Chi's voice at once dreamy and dramatic never falters, and Liliet's cycle of reinventions is a moving meditation on the transformative power of fate, art, time, and sheer survival. Mm. And that's what we've got for notable books on the fiction list. It's quite a nice list. Yeah, it looks good. Especially lots. fiction, yeah. Yeah, lots, lots going on. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Lee Eisenberg talks with us about the many meanings of life. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. I'm the author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Lee Eisenberg in the office with us. What a treat. His new book is The Point Is. Lee, I'm so glad you could join us. My pleasure. So this book is a a follow-up in some ways to The Number, um, and it's about your search for life's meaning. So so give us, that's a big topic. I was going to say, a very small topic. I thought I I could just knock that one out really quickly. How do you tackle something like that? Well, for, let me draw the connection between this book and the number. It, 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 the number came out a number of years ago, and uh, this is not exactly a literal sequel to it. Uh, the number, if people recall it, was a book about uh, our, uh, the troubles we have with money, why we're not comfortable emotionally with money, and more specifically, why don't we save for the future? Why don't we plan better? Because, you know, Americans are notoriously uh, procrastinators when it comes to getting a financial plan together. And uh, so I wandered through this world of of, uh, emotions as it pertained to money and also talked to a ton of financial advisors about why their clients were so uncomfortable with the whole process and basically wrote, wrote to the conclusion that one of the issues we have is that we're so obsessed with how much we need 
we don't often stop and ask ourselves, what do we need it for? You know, what will make us happy or fulfilled or provide meaningfulness to us in our later decades particularly? Um, and, and, and I ran into a very smart, uh, actually a, a Zen practicing financial advisor. I know there are not too many of those. I <laughs> uh, probably should be many more of those who, um, who gave his uh, clients, all of his clients, a, a, a sh an exercise to go through. And basically at the end of the day, at the end of the exercise, the questions that, the two questions he wanted everyone to try to answer is, who did you not get to be? And what did you not get to do in, in your life? And he argued that how much money you need or what your number should be. Uh, cannot really be arrived at intelligently until you answer those two questions. Um, but I never got into this whole, the dynamic of who did we not get to be and what did we not get to do. And so I, so the, the circle was never quite closed in my mm. mind. So some years later, uh, a few years ago, uh, I decided that I would set out on the road to try to, you know, an not answer those questions for everyone, because just as I couldn't tell you, Rose, or you, Mark, how much money you each need to be happy for the rest of your lives. This book does not purport to tell every man, woman, or child as yet unborn what the meaning of life is. But, but what it does do, and what I certainly tried to do, was to uh, try to get us to think in some different ways, or even stop to think for a moment about why we're here, uh, you know, what purposefulness is, mm -hmm. uh, and, and perhaps to look at how you've always looked at those enormous questions a little bit differently. And your your own journey, what, what, what was, uh, how did you... Erratic, sort of, yeah, okay. in, in, a, in a single <laughs> word. <laughs> My own, and, and I think that's, I'm sure, also a reason I was curious to jump into all of this. Um, I was always busy, as most of us are. Mm -hmm. uh, I, in my case, uh, I probably now have worked in three or four uh, dramatically different industries. I've lived in five or six different places. I've been dragging my family around from New York to London for a while, uh, where I helped start a British Esquire, a British edition of Esquire. Moved back to the States. We lived in Knoxville. We then came back to New York. Then we went to Madison, Wisconsin. And now, for the most part, we live in Chicago, mm. uh, which is a lot of moving. I mean, even if mm -hmm. it's you know, a lot of packing, a lot of unpacking, a lot of getting set, a lot of learning the language and jargon of a new job and a new place and... and trying to understand how people in Knoxville, what they're trying to say when they talk. That was very difficult, given the accent. <laughs> harder than yeah. London. Yeah, well, <laughs> much harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything was in was within two or three miles of the Krispy Kreme. <laughs> and um, I didn't know what people were saying. They were talking about the Krispy Kreme uh, donut place. Mm. Well, anyway, uh, I, never I, never could I never chose to stop to take a breath and say, what are you doing? I mean, wh what is this all about? And of course, the decades go by. Uh, and finally, this decade came, and I had this opportunity to just say, wait a minute, I've never really stopped to think about, um, you know, what, what it all means. And I think that question gets louder and louder. Uh, we ask ourselves that when we're teenagers, of course, you mm -hmm. know, uh, famously. But, but we then sort of stop asking that question, uh, and then we ask it, start asking it again in middle age and as we get older than that. So... Um, I, I really thought that I should clear the decks and try in a, in a number of ways to try to answer that question to my satisfaction and then with any luck, you know, to, to others' uh, satisfaction. So how do you go about that, all right, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the oldest question known to mankind. Why am I here? Um, 
And I guess it, it, retrospectively, I guess I did it, I tried to do it in three ways. I spent a ton of time reading uh, in, at a couple of uh, university libraries. Uh, and I quickly uh, realized that I, I had no clue as to where to start because you can't, you can't sit on one of those little step, rolling step stools and roll into any area of the stacks and not find <laughs> some, re some arguments or some conjecture about purposefulness. Mm -hmm. uh, even uh, the nursing section you know, talks a lot about it, about end-of-life care and what people are looking for there. So I, I did a lot of reading. Uh, I, I didn't go back and read all the Greeks, but I, I read at least some intelligent spark notes on the Greeks. Mm. Uh, I read studies, psychological studies. I looked into neuroscience. You know, I, 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 I wouldn't say I dabbled, but clearly I, you cannot do exhaustive searches, but I did an awful lot of reading. The other thing I did is an awful lot of talking to people, which is re everyday people uh, across ages, you know, uh, only to find that millennials were probably asking themselves, what, what, what do I want? You know, what, what will make me happy? What's a job that will make me fulfilled? So I, and I talked to a lot of older people as well. And then I started, uh, and this is where I think I kind of got my breakthrough. I started thinking about my own life. And, in and particularly, I started mining my memories uh, from the time that I was young. And it was in the, in, in the area of memories and what we do with our memories that I think the main thrust of the book uh, finally occurred to me. Well, that was actually one of my questions. Let's talk about these memories and how, how do memories shape us or shape our perception of ourselves? The, uh, well, um, I'm, I basically will come right out and say I think it, it, it's really the only thing that shapes our perception of ourselves. Um, when we're three, generally speaking, around three or four years old, Two things happen, um, and we're obviously not aware of it. The, and, and, and because they happen almost simultaneously, there's, a, there's reason to believe that there's a connection between them. The first is we actually start collecting memories mm -hmm. that will endure. Not a lot. You don't remember. We may think we remember more about when we were three, but we remember certain things more or less accurately. Uh, and then as time goes on, we collect more and more memories, and we collect just, I don't know how many memories by the end of the day. The other thing that happens, coincidentally, is we develop our capacity for narrative. We, we begin to understand stories, and we begin to be able to create our own stories. And what was so intriguing to me about that was that, um, and the reason we create stories, and why narrative is so unbelievably crucially important to the human condition, is that it really is how we make sense of life, of our own life. So we start taking all these memories that we've collected. We start grouping those memories into chapters, if you will. I could ask either of you right now, what were the best chapters of your life, the worst chapters? You know, what was the turning point? What were the several turning points? And we begin to make, literally, a story, a life story, out of all of these experiences and relationships. And, an, and the story enables us to create characters, obviously. The char we then invest um, motives for why those characters did what they did. We begin to explain things. Everything basically gets explained by that story that we all, quote-unquote, write uh, upstairs in our heads. And, it, and it's almost as if there's this teeny, tiny, miniature writer, could be a man, could be a woman, doesn't matter, uh, sort of nestled in the fissures of our brain, 
maybe sitting on a teeny tiny ergonomically correct chair <laughs> with his extraordinarily small laptop, you know, maybe smoking, maybe, you know, smoking a joint. It depends on how you like your writers. Uh, and that, that person or that writer, uh, that scribbler, as I call it in the book, is just continuously sorting through memories, throwing some out, deleting some, rewriting some, you know, making them, you know, highly inaccurate, uh, but basically creating this, this life story. And, I, and, and why that became so, I think, useful to me is that I began to realize that if we sit, if we go back and reread the story, if you will, and your listeners can't see me, but I'm doing quote marks with my fingers. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing it. You, um, uh, but if you, if you go back and really reread that story the way you might go back and read a, any novel you know, or a short story that you really loved, over time you can begin to read that story differently. The story may mean something because you're adding your more recent experiences or your current mood or anything else. And, and, and so a big part of the book is really to try to encourage people uh, to do that. And can you uh, give us an example of one of your memories in one of these well, chapters? I forget. No, I, don't okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Or you rewrote it. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever saw a dead something, and I, I had completely forgotten. I thought I had completely forgotten uh, this memory. But I was uh, on the beach. I grew up in um, Philadelphia, and we would sometimes the family would go for a week, maybe two, in a good year to Atlantic City. We rented a small house in Atlantic City and we would go to the beach every day and I was I I think I remember and that's sometimes memories don't really happen but I'm pretty certain I remember running across the beach um, probably in the direction of you know those ice cream guys with the bells that drive you crazy and sell fudge sickles and cream sickles and I was probably running toward that uh, with my as fast as my chubby little legs would carry me and I remember seeing a dead fish, a carcass, um, on the beach. Disgusting, smelly eyes were plucked out. You know, not all of the flesh was there and everything else. And I remember stopping and looking at it, transfixed. Even forgot about the ice cream man. And I remember my mother running over, pretty panicky, um, and, and pulling me away, dragging me away, and, and saying, you must never, ever go near anything that, like that again. And... In thinking about it, when I was writing the book, I realized, well, yeah, the, you know, the horrible dead fish carcass was probably lots of bacteria. It wasn't a healthy thing to be around. But I also thought, well, maybe she was protecting me from the, the awareness of death itself. Because, mm. you know, kids don't know from death at right. all at that age. Um, and uh, the way almost a, 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 a mother bear would, create, would protect a cub or, a, you know, a deer would protect a doe or something like that. She was keeping me away from the realization uh, of that. And it, if I wasn't really working through my memories, and I don't know if that made me a happier, better person for having realized something like that, but it, it offered some insight into life that I would not have had if I wasn't making this sort of self-directed, self-guided journey back through my own memories. Um, so that was one of them. And another one, which probably we needn't get into in great detail, was the death of my father, which was a big time uh, memory when I was 13. And uh, I, I really think as a result of this book, however devastating that event was at the time and thereafter, I really think I've, I, I, I've, I can't, I've come to better terms with that and how it affected me than had I not gone back and 
sort of reread my story, if, if only for purposes of writing a book. So this sounds like it was almost self-directed psychotherapy. I didn't mean to do that, but uh, I guess it was. Uh, I guess it was like that. Uh, the other thing I really liked about it, because you know, as, because I was a, a, a magazine editor for so long, um, I, I I've had a lot of experience with stories, uh, with commissioning stories, with you know, celebrating when writers wrote great stories and despairing when they wrote terrible stories, trying to fix stories. Um, and I, what was it most interesting to me was was trying to self-direct this, my own memories, in a, on a parallel path to what I knew writers went through when they actually wrote stories. Um, when, back at Esquire, when a manuscript came in and it kind of fell apart at the middle, which a lot of manuscripts do, both mm -hmm. fiction and nonfiction, we used to call it, I don't know who started this, we used to call it the elbow. And, and people <laughs> would say, uh, staff members would say, this is a great piece, but the elbow really sucks. Uh, it falls apart at the elbow. And, you know, there, there's usually a good reason it does fall apart at the elbow. And then I started to realize, well, we have this elbow in our own life stories. It's called midlife. And, and while I do talk about whether or not there's a midlife crisis that we all, actually we used to talk about it more curiously than we talk about it today, but there is this thing in the culture called the midlife crisis. And, um, I began to realize that a lot of the reasons behind the so-called midlife crisis are not all that similar for why a writer screws up mm -hmm. when, he, when he or she gets to the middle of a piece. So there's quite a lot in the book uh, that I think taps not just into my own you know, past and memories, but also taps into great writers and how they tell great stories. We could learn from them. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, who is telling us some amazing things about the ways that our brains work and we tell ourselves and one another stories. So does that, that little writer in your head need an editor? Uh, yeah. Um, and I suppose you could argue that if you, you go through analysis, one of the things that an analyst does is serve as an editor. Mm. Um, I've never gone through it, as I'm sure your listeners can tell I probably should have, but I never, I never availed myself. But I do think the analytic process is very much that. I mean, what, what Freud did, among others, but basically, I, my, my own pet theory long before this book was that if, if, if Freudian analysis or talk therapy in general had any therapeutic value, it was because it provided the, the, an, the, the, the patient the opportunity to sit there or lie there and tell his or her story. Mm. We don't get that chance in life. And it, was, it's, it seems to me almost blissful, now, albeit expensive, that you can actually have an opportunity to, to lie there and, again, I'm doing my hand quotation things, and write, you know, or at least tell the story of your life and in getting it out and then perhaps with the editorial guidance um, uh, of, the, of the doctor, you might actually begin to 
rewrite certain portions of that story that could actually make it into a, a, a happier or more meaningful or satisfying story for you. Now, um, of course, I, I immediately think of social media and how, you know, for example, I've had a, a blog for 15 years and, and I feel like that's been my way of telling my story, um, but without that editorial guidance. So are, are we missing? Well, no, no I think I'm, I, I use social, I'm ca I am captive uh, and I'm imprisoned by social media as much as anybody. I'm not happy about that. But I, one of the... Uh, one of the things that I really now hate about social media, and it's not social media's fault, but it's our fault, is that I, I, I began to realize we don't keep diary we don't we don't keep diaries to the degree we should. Personal journals, totally private. Mm. Uh, and I went around saying, asking people, do you keep a journal? Did you ever keep a diary? And most people don't. Why? Well, because I'm too busy, which is legit. Uh, well, I don't write well, which is like a ridiculous reason not to keep a diary because nobody's going to read it presumably. Um, and then a f number of people said, well, I don't really need it because I can, I have an blo online blog or I can post on Facebook. I have this, this epiphany. I can always put it on my Facebook page or, or tweet it. And I, I try in the book to make the case that those are not substitutes for keeping a journal. And they're not substitutes because first of all, um, the, you know, there's an audience and you're obviously going to mm -hmm. edit what you say. Second of all, some of, even if you even if your greatest epiphanies are captured on Facebook, they just scroll out of existence, you know, within 10 seconds or within an hour or two, you know, they're gone. And no one ever goes back and reads their own po historic posts. Nobody does. Um, and you don't have this permanent running record of your insights or your observations or your revelations or your discoveries or whatever it might be. Whereas a diary, of course, you do. And... Um, I, I then started reading a lot of great diaries and, uh, and, it's, uh, and, and a lot of really bad diaries. And, you know, there's no correlation between how interesting a life someone has and how good their diary is. Uh, George Orwell is, you know, one of my journalistic heroes. And he's, his, his diaries have been published, and I think they're incredibly boring. And yet, you know, some nobodies, um, not even published writers, have written brilliant diaries. And, and I... And I, and I then realized, and I'd forgotten about this, that I too ha had kept a diary once in my life, and only once in my life. Uh, it lasted for about 23 months. It started when our first child was born and ended shortly after our second child was born. Again, to speaking of memory, I had totally forgotten that I had kept this. This is 25 years ago. Totally forgot that I had kept a diary. And I, I had this thought in a library where I was working, and I raced home, and I opened my hard drive, I didn't open my hard drive, but I logged onto my computer, and there still preserved, as if in amber, uh, was this Word document that I had created and forgotten about. It, it had survived uh, eight or nine Mac operating system op upgrades. It, you know, it had gone from desktop to laptop to desktop. It survived Steve Jobs himself. And I opened it up, and sure enough, there was this 23-month account, not a daily account, but a you know, fairly faithful reckoning of, of, of those nearly two years. And I was so grateful to have that because I think I, among other things, it reminded me of how extraordinarily magical it was to become a parent. Uh, you know, we can say it's magical, but nobody really remembers how magical it, it was. Um, and it 
it, it reminded me of certain characters who had entered our life, cameo players who had entered our life story very briefly that I had completely forgotten about. Uh, the midwife in, in London, as it happened, who delivered our daughter uh, was a woman from the Philippines, totally forgot that she ever existed, certainly forgot her name, had, had no memory of what she looked mm -hmm. like, but there she was, back, coming back to life. And it made me think, my God, we go through life and these characters to step onto the stage momentarily uh, who, who may not th uh, themselves have changed our life, but they were present at a very important moment in our life, or in her, this case, she actually delivered my daughter. And had I not had her preserved in my, the pages of my you know, modest diary, uh, I, I would have totally forgotten mm -hmm. about her, which in turn led me to think that there are people who play very meaningful, albeit very short you know, parts in our life story that we never could, you know, have a prayer of remembering. And, and so I'm, you know, I'm going around now, you know, sort of in my fusty way, suggesting that some people you know, start diaries. And it's a hopeless task, if only because I think social media is giving people the illusion that they're actually recording important insights. Mm. Mm. So does that make sense? It yeah, it, it does definitely. completely. Uh, and I think, as you said, that that when you write on social media, it's, you know it's going to be in the public rather than your own in truly insecure or whatever <laughs> thoughts you may have. Uh, it's also in, interrupted by advertising. Yes, and who true. wants advertising yeah, yeah, in their own yeah, life story? Yeah, yeah. So you know, we had uh, when you first came to the office, we had talked a little bit about meaningfulness in life, and and you know, we talked about your history. You were the editor in chief of Esquire for for a while. You you started Esquire London. You 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 were also on the uh, uh, on the ground starting to. Uh, I think one or two other ventures to, to someone. And, and, I was, looking... and I was in the schmata business. Don't forget that. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and um, from an outsider, it seems like you've had a very meaningful life. Can we talk about meaningfulness? Uh, well, I would, I would not say that's a meaningful life on the face of that. Mm. Um, I, I, and if there is meaningfulness in my life, I can't really say it accrues to any of those career stops. Although the t my time at Esquire was, I, I, I suppose, very meaningful. It was so exciting. I learned so much. It was a, a whirlwind. I never stopped to really think about why it might be meaningful. But it, looking back, it was deeply meaningful. Mm -hmm. I got to meet a lot of really great writers. And I got to gain confidence in myself that I actually was halfway smart. I, I really I got my job at a, uh, on a fluke. And I right out of uh, graduate school, and I didn't think I was smart. In fact, I thought it was like the greatest fraud who ever came to New York. So it was meaningful in, in that sense. But what, what doing the book uh, helped me understand was the difference between meaningfulness and happiness, uh, which is a, a huge confusion, I think, that a lot of people, or at least an issue they never stop really to think about. We, as parents, you know, every one of us says, all I want for my kids is that they be happy and, and healthy, of course, but you know, that goes without, the healthy goes without saying. Mm -hmm. And now I will not say that. In fact, a, a woman said, what about this whole journey of writing the book? Has it changed you in any way? And I said, yeah, I don't, I no longer say all I want for my kids is that they be happy. And of course she blanched and you know, and it's not that I don't want them to be happy, but what I, what I want them to do now is to lead meaningful lives because unless you do lead 
a life that you deem to be meaningful. You know, society doesn't necessarily have to deem it to be meaningful. Chances are you're not going to be happy. Mm. Uh, you're going to be restless. Mm. You're going to be bored. Uh, you're going to be down on yourself. You're, you're not, you won't be very confident about who you are. And you're not going to be happy, even if you have all the money in the world. That is not, you know, here's a great revelation. That's not going to make you happy. You know, we all know that. Uh, so then the question is, if you do have a meaningful life, or does it follow then that if you do have a meaningful life, will you be happy? And the answer is not necessarily. Uh, sure. you, know, you know, the great important you know, players who've changed history uh, very often have had profoundly meaningful lives, but they've not had happy lives. Uh, and, and, and in fact, you know, I've uncovered also a trove of, there's a ton of studies that psychologists have done on this very topic. And over and over again, you know, the evidence points to the fact that you're really not going to report yourself as being satisfied with life unless it's meaningful. And on the other hand, if you do say it's satisfying and meaningful, often you will say, but it doesn't make me happy. Nelson Mandela did not have a happy life. Right. Uh, you know, being in prison for 27 years is not a happy experience. Um, but he led a meaningful one. Uh, so, so it all brings us back to, remember when you guys were... 15 and you were in your sad little bedrooms, you know, on a Friday night, you know, you were probably reading Lord of the Flies and <laughs> you, you were probably, you, know, you might have been reading Catcher in the Rye, you know, I don't know what you were reading. When all of the really cool kids were out, you know, having fun uh, with their clothes and cars and, you know, never sweating a prom date or anything, and you guys were, I'm sure you I'm sure both of you were in the A-list, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I weren't publishing. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I I took a teddy bear to prom. That was my prom. Date. Really? Yeah. Ted was his name. Ted. No, it was it was an actual stuffed bear. I put on my dress. We took photos, and then everybody else went to prom, and I got a good night's that, sleep. <laughs> I just spent three years talking to people about their how meaningful or meaningless their lives. That is the most depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I lo I loved it. It was everything I, I wanted from prom, and nothing I didn't. I'm I'm kidding you, but. Do you remember then asking yourselves on that Friday night, you know, the, the crux of the question, is it better to be like me here alone, having really important thoughts, questioning my own existence, reading this wonderful but depressing book? Or is it better to be like the kids, you know, in the, on, in the A-list? And, you know, that really is a question that philosophers, going back to the Greeks and continuing on to today, ask themselves, they ask it a little differently, which is the question of happiness versus meaningfulness. And um, we were probably onto that existential question in a far more acute way when we were these, you know, depressing, lonely, melancholy, angst-ridden, you know, teenagers, then we often stop and think about it again mm -hmm. until possibly when we get to be, you know, quite old and, and we do what gerontologists say we tend to do, which is a a quote-unquote life review when we mm -hmm. when we go back and we ask ourselves what was the point of all that so um, do you have do you have an answer to what the point is or is it ev everyone has to figure it out for themselves I probably could have written a book in which I came up with an answer for every human being who ever lived uh, I, I that's not this book and if anybody picks the book up and says oh he will tell me what my purposefulness is all about. I, you can't, no one can presume to do that. Not even Oprah. Uh, so so the, ans <laughs> the answer is not in that sense. What, I, what my answer is, is first of all, you want to 
look for a meaningful life and not a quote-unquote happy one. And there are some very, very intelligent uh, ways to decide, or at least to start looking for where meaningfulness comes from. You know, Viktor Frankl, his, his great classic book, Man's Search for Meaning, mm. which has sold, I don't know, 20 million copies, continues to sell very well all around the world, uh, for me was one of the really best resources in terms of really defining for myself what is meaningful. Uh, overcoming adversity uh, and being able to still see meaningfulness in the world even though you've gone through or are going through a highly stressful if not catastrophic situation. Meaning comes from that. Uh, I think a lot of us don't feel our lives are meaningful because we're not ex expressing ourselves creatively enough. Uh, and I don't mean writing or painting or anything else necessarily, but we're not, we're not ex indulging our creative channel uh, in, a, in anything you can think of. I think that's a biggie. I can't tell you the number of, of interviews that, in which somebody says, and when I said, what would you like to do? Well, I, I, I'm a really a great singer, or I always wanted to play the piano, or mm. I, I, I majored in art and I've, you know, I haven't picked up paintbrush in 30 years. We close off our creative channel, and I think that, and maybe that's related to the story writing channel. So I think that's a biggie that people should think, everyone uh, should think about. Um, and then the other thing I think is, well, Franco called it committing yourself to loving, to loving someone in all his or her uniqueness, meaning warts and all, or things that bother you, or you really loving at least someone and perhaps you know, more people than that. That is a very, very, there's a, lot, there's a big return. There's a meaningful return um, on that. And then there are one or two others that I, I talk about in the book. So you know, those are accessible. Those don't cost money, by the way. Not one of them is expensive. And in fact, virtually all, oh, and then giving back. I, I, selflessly mm -hmm. uh, to a church. A lot of people told me that. I, I, my big regret is that I didn't give enough back to a church or a school or a community or the, or the planet or, or something like that. And, and, and I think uh, we should make time for any and all of those things uh, and, and before it's too late. Wow. We've been talking with Lee Eisenberg. You can find his book, The Point Is, in stores right now, and it really sounds like everyone should. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Features editor Carolyn Juris introduces our spring travel feature. Stay tuned. I'm Tim Dorsey, author of Coconut Cowboy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris is here to tell us all about new series from big travel publishers. Hello, Carolyn. Hello, Mark. So it looks like our feature is about travel in America. It is. It is the 100th anniversary this year of the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. So publishers are rolling out a number of new books, updating old titles, and they have a bunch of marketing initiatives in order to get the word out. So what about what are a couple of titles that we that we we can look forward to this year? Okay, so uh, Foders is updating three of its titles, including books on Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks, mm -hmm. uh, Yosemite and Sequoia Kings Canyon and also the Fodor's Complete Guide to the National Parks of the West. Uh, we've also got um, an eighth edition from National Geographic of their guide to the National Parks of the U.S. Uh, they have a centennial edition of one of their kids' guides. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Lonely Planet with 
a few different books. I mean, when I think of Lonely Planet, I think of European travel or travel to unexplored places. And here they have uh, a book traveling to, you know, like the various parks. I mean, it seems this pretty cool. So it's probably a little more affordable than the other ones. Well, Lonely Planet does tend toward a younger traveler than some of the others, like a photos or a fromers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're reaching out to people who maybe haven't been to the national parks. The average parks visitor is, um, for a lot of the parks, is in their 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lonely Planet tends to appeal to a younger demographic. Right. Uh, in fact, they have a an entire line of children's guidebooks. They're not traditional guides, but um, they're really heavily invested in getting young people interested in travel. What a cool idea. I love the the thought of a children's travel book. So like the parents there with their Lonely Planet guide and the kids there with their own Lonely Planet guide and they can sort of do stuff side by side. Exactly. And the for the, you know, if I were the parents, I would much rather look at the kids book. They have pop-ups and interactive elements and they really kind of bring the city to life either before you go or when you come back, you can relive the trip. So I didn't actually know that a lot of these guidebook companies did guides to places like the National Parks. You think of them, as you say, for cities. Um, you know, I'm expecting a, a Lonely Planet guide to Prague, not to Yosemite. Um, so is this a relatively recent thing? Do you know? Or um, these have been around a while and I just um, wasn't some, aware. Some of them have been around a while. I know we we're looking at like eighth and ninth editions of some of the books. So although, you know, I think this year with the 100th anniversary, maybe they'll get a lot more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but the books have been around for a while. And it sounds like some of these publishing houses are doing events to help publicize it, like um, or or giveaways or something. They are. National Geographic has a consumer sweepstakes. Lonely Planet actually has a contest for retailers. They'd like to see retailers' um, displays of Lonely Planet books. Uh, not sure what the prize is. They're being a little secretive, but I'm sure it'll be excellent. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, there's a book from Chronicle that's a little different. It's not a guidebook. It's um, a book of WPA-style Depression-era posters. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, it, it looks beautiful. And they've got, um, they're going to have a traveling exhibition that's going to go to a bunch of major cities. Uh, this is a project with an organization called Creative Arts Network or Creative Artists Network. Uh, and they donate some of the proceeds to the national parks. Uh, so they're getting out awareness in a kind of a different way, but very lovely coffee table style book. Now, is the National Park Service itself doing any kind of promo that ties into this? Do we know? Or uh, are they just kind of sitting back and letting the publishers do all the work? I believe they are. We actually, for the purposes of the feature, focused on what the publishers are doing. But I know that uh, the parks is certainly heavily invested in promoting it. I'm sure I heard something on a different radio station this morning uh, about the anniversary. Got it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So what else is in this feature? So we thought it would be fun uh, because of the National Parks focus to look at um, other American guidebooks, um, you know, real like we're calling it Americana, the beautiful. So there's a new uh, guidebook from Moon, which is another big publisher uh, on Route 66, mm-hmm. the, the classic, very, cool. very classic road trip. Uh, we've got one on, we're not advocating this, but on uh, train hopping, um, sometimes <laughs> right. called fair jumping in New York City. Yeah. Uh, that's from a publisher uh, out west called Microcosm, who does a lot of uh, more offbeat titles so so wait this is a thing you can still do because i think of that as you know going back to the the era when you could when the train ran slowly enough as it was leaving the station that you could jump on behind yeah i guess this is some like divergent kind of stuff uh but i mean 
meaning the movie where they're jumping off trains. Right, right, yeah. Those are my YA roots showing, I apologize. Um, but yeah, there are people who still kind of live that hobo life. Um, the, I did the not book, know that. The book refers to them as hipster hobos. Um, oh, I, wow. I refuse to call them that. <laughs> oh my God, everything's being gentrified. Exactly. <laughs> you, Even, have, you have your bindle with the designer bandana. <laughs> Yes, the Hermes scarf tying together your little hobo lunch. Right. Wow. Wow. Amazing. This this world is an incredible place. I did not know that such things existed. Yes, they still do. Well, you can get that book from Microcosm. Okay. Uh, Yeah, that is called Railroad Semantics. That'll be out in June. What a great title. Uh, Then more uh, conventionally, we've got some new ventures from some of the more established publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people know who Rick Steves is, big European travel guide right. person. Uh, he has a son mm-hmm. who has written his own guide to Europe, City Hopping on a Budget. Um, presumably this does not involve train hopping, although I haven't seen the book, so I don't know. Uh, he's in his mid-20s and he's writing for that audience. Uh, that's also coming from Avalon, who is Rick Steves' publisher. Uh, Rick's got a couple of new guides out. Um, he's got a new best of series, which sort of takes his typically very comprehensive look at a particular country and distills it down. Mm-hmm. Um, meant more for like a seven to 12 day trip. Uh, we've got DK relaunching their top 10 books. So there's a lot of this more uh, impulsive kind of travel hmm. uh, that publishers say they're seeing and they're responding to that. When you say impulsive, you mean people just going, you know, let, let's go have breakfast in New Orleans. Uh, I'll book the ticket now. Or? <laughs> I don't know if it's quite that impulsive, but more instead of, you know, taking the guidebook out from the library or buying it a month in advance and really pouring over it and highlighting it. It's you might flip through it on the plane and see what looks good and gotcha. decide when you get there. Right. Mm-hmm. So so very improvisational travel. Yes. Got it. Interesting. That's how I've always traveled. So I, I was never the advanced planning kind. So I, I didn't realize I was going to be part of a zeitgeist. Yeah, you're right on trend. And I see for our truly intrepid travelers that there are, uh, that Brooklyn has become a destination. <laughs> Speaking of everything's been gentrified. Uh, yes, uh, we're seeing Brooklyn all over publishing, including travel. Uh, there's... But it's not actually a new thing for travel guides. Uh, There's a new book from Rutgers University Press. uh, And the author actually did a travel guide to the wilds of Brooklyn uh, about 30 years ago was her first one. Wow. Uh, And so they're, um, you know, updating with all the new artisanal goodies. And um, no, it it should be good. They they also did a book on the Bronx last year. Right. Hmm. Uh, Rutgers did, a different author. So they're, you know... They're venturing out. They're venturing beyond New Jersey. Well, all right. Maybe, maybe I should I should take back my snark because when I moved to Brooklyn, uh, I found a book of walking tours, and it it was a little out of date because it described some areas as unsafe that seemed perfectly fine to me. Uh, but uh, it was really nice to have that resource, even as someone living there, to just have an idea of kind of where to start exploring my new home. Oh, sure. And I think a lot of these books, these kind of city guides, the best ones are really for both the person who lives there as well as the person who's just visiting because, you know, it's, it's impossible to have an exhaustive knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So have you seen, have we seen much more in the terms, in in ways of literary memoirs or literary travel? Yeah, actually, um, for spring, we have a lot of um, kind of big names who are delving into the travel market or, you know, have already been. But there's a there's a book um, of essays called City Squares. 
uh, edited by a woman named Katie Maron for Harper, and she did a book a couple years ago called City Parks on a similar idea. So she's got people like Zadie Smith, David Remnick, Rebecca Sklute writing about, you know, public spaces in urban areas. Oh, mm. very cool. Uh, we've got, um, let's see, we've got Russell Banks with uh, some essays on travel to the Caribbean, the Himalayas, other places. Uh, and I love this quote from the book, uh, his longing for, quote, rejuvenation, wealth untold, erotic, n- narcotic, and sybaritic fresh starts. Wow. And so, Perfect. <laughs> uh, and that book is called Voyager. Did he find what he was looking for? <laughs> You'll have to read the book. Okay. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> uh, so we've also got um, a woman called Jean McNeil, who I believe is British, and she, she spent a lot of time. She's a novelist and memoirist. She spent time in Antarctica uh, with the British Antarctic Survey, and her book called Ice Diaries uh, talks about the uh, psychological and emotional effects of climate, hmm. which I think today some of us in New York can attest to. It, yes. I was looking at uh, the forecast for Saturday where it's going to feel like negative 12. Oh, oh good. It's not, not quite Antarctica, <laughs> right. but it feels pretty close. Yeah, sounds close. Uh, and in addition to some of those um, modern books, there's also uh, a number of books this season, seemingly, and I don't want to say unprecedented, but quite a few um, books that talk about travel, you know, from days past. So we've got uh, one called um, the uh, A Barbarian in Asia, which uh, was by French poet and painter Henri Michaud. It was translated in 1949 by Sylvia Beach, who's the woman who founded Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, and he traveled in India, China, Japan, and other areas east um, in 1930-31. So uh, New Directions Publishing is bringing that book back. Cool. Uh, We've got um, a book on uh, Richard Halliburton, Mm -hmm. who was the first person to swim across the Panama Canal. And he shot the first aerial photographs of Mount Everest. And this was in the 20s and 30s. Uh, That's from Chicago Review, American Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a book called Magic Island which uh, caught the attention of Vice magazine. Uh, William Seabrook, who was an explorer and also apparently a cannibal, wrote this book in 1929 about his travels in Haiti. Hmm. So that's a little different from your average uh, Zadie Smith wandering through a beautiful city. Right, exactly. exactly. It'd be be interesting to look at those and see how much is the same and how much has changed with travel writing. To to look at sort of the, the history of exoticization in a way, and and these people. I mean, I I love the title of a barbarian in Asia because it turns your uh, Western expectations upside down. We don't usually see ourselves as the barbarians, exactly. But it's all relative. No, it's true, and I, and I think even despite the title, you the book definitely has some things that might make a modern reader uncomfortable. But it is kind of a valuable insight into the way people thought and traveled. Mm-hmm. You know, almost a hundred years ago. That's great. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Carolyn. It's great to have this uh, preview of our travel feature. And when is it going up? Uh, this will be out Monday, this coming Monday, which is, somebody help me out, February 15th. 15th. Yes. 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 <laughs> February 15th, President's great. Day. All right. Perfect. I look for it then. Thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. 
Hi, I'm Tom Hart, the creator of the book Rosalie Lightning, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Charlie Jane Anders, author of All the Birds in the Sky. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 